0: All right, good morning, guys. It is time for our, uh, our call to worship, and so I'm going to invite you to um, quiet your hearts and quiet your mind, as I do every week, to, to be fully present. Um, the Lord is here, and uh, there's much for you to receive, uh, so let's be present, right? Let's, let's be here. So, our call to worship, welcome. Welcome. To all who are weary and need rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who feel worthless and wonder if God cares, to all who fail and desire strength, to all who sin and need a Savior, to all who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and to whoever will come, this church opens wide her doors and uh, offers you welcome in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Read the underlined portions along with me. Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. We sing praises to your name
1: morning, Charlie Church, let's stand together and sing.
2: Oh, creatures of our God and King, lift up your voice and with us sing. You The sun sets free, always free. The Stone
1: this together. Good Shepherd, you spread a table before us. We are grateful for what you have given us. You have given us your best when you gave us Jesus. We gratefully bring our gifts to you. Use our gifts for your glory and our good.
2: Of grace is Jesus, my redeemer. There is no more for heaven now to give. He is my joy, my righteousness, and free. My steadfast love, my deep and boundless peace. To this I hold my hope. we ship.
1: Almighty Father, seeing as our salvation depends upon a true understanding of your word, grant us hearts to hear and know your word with all diligence and faith. We ask to rightly understand your gracious will, to cherish it and live by it with all eagerness, to the praise and honor of your name through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Please take a moment and greet those around you. Kids, you are dismissed. We'll now read together from God's word. We'll be reading this morning from Romans chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. That can be found on page 940 in the Bibles on the chairs around you. Page 940, Romans chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. the word of
0: the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Hey, good morning, y'all. Welcome to Trailhead. Uh, My name is Steve. I'm the lead pastor. Thanks for joining us as we continue our study through the book of Romans. Let me remind you, if you haven't picked up one of our study books from the lobby, please do so. Uh, We would love to get that into your hands, right, so that you can use it and and engage the study before you show up on a Sunday, a place to take some notes, some questions to help you process what you're learning in community, a place for devotional prayer. Um, this is our tool to help you get the most out of this study. If you picked up one of those books and, uh, and honestly just haven't opened it, right? You took it home, you had all the best intentions, you put it on the shelf, um, pick it up, right? The best place to start is where you are, right? So, so don't don't let, well, I just haven't touched it yet, so I'm, grab it, okay? Dig in. Um, it is designed to help you grow, so please engage it. You, you ever have one of those moments where you are just struck by your own hypocrisy? One of those really, really pleasant moments? Uh, Matt Chandler tells a story. Matt Chandler is a, a pastor in Texas and, and the president of the X29 Network. He's a guy that I, I respect a ton uh, but he, he tells this story um, of, of one of these moments for him. He was a young man, a young pastor, kind of an up and coming guy that was invited to a con- uh, a conference and and um, uh, as a young pastor, he was kind of at the forefront of this new authentic church movement um, you know we 're all going to be real and, and uh, he 's going to say things like man we 're all jacked up and he used language that was uncommon and and um, just just a very low level real uh, kind of a guy and he gets invited to this conference and he's surrounded by kind of old school religious guys a lot of a lot of suits um, a lot of old guard reputations a lot of people showing up on their Sunday best and the conference itself turns out to be one of those old school preach offs right where, where basically different guys get up there and give their best sermons and they're all kind of patting each other in the back and and um, And these are the kind of guys. Let's just be honest. That that um, uh, are often absolutely perfectly fine with overeating, but won't touch a drop of alcohol. And so, and so, as Matt is there, uh, as part of this conference, looking around at these guys, he just is like, man, why am I here? I don't fit in here. These these are not my people. Um, These guys are are you know. He's just like he's put off. He's 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 um, you know basically judging them. Um, starting to feel pretty superior to them, and until it actually gets articulated in his mind, that he's—he's he's like, man, I'm—I'm I'm judging them for being judgmental. I'm being a Pharisee toward their Phariseeism. I—I—I'm—I'm. I'm, these are my people, right? It's that moment of of this is right. They're, I belong here. Um, have you ever had one of those moments where your own hypocrisy uh, just? came up in front of you and you couldn't deny it. It was just there in your face where you had clarity and you thought, man, I'm guilty of the same thing that I feel so judgmental toward. Um, and have you ever noticed how much you, you need to judge? I mean, how much you actually like it, right? I mean, think about how much you judge, how often you feel superior toward others what you feel superior about, right? It could be really, really important things, like, like what sports club somebody enjoys, like, oh, you like that kind of sportsing. Well, I'm with these sportsing guys, right? It can, be, it can be something less important, like politics. You voted for who? You, you buy into what, right? It, it, could, be, it could be something, um, I mean, holy cow, it could be a car, right what kind of car somebody literally what kind of car uh, you know all the good old boys show up at the gun range in their pickup trucks and they all climb out and they look over and there's a dude in 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 um, you know cowboy boots with a big belt buckle getting out of a prius right they're going to have a moment right i've seen it where it's like right we can judge people about anything like literally anything i i remember the first time when i when i realized that that like length of tie was something right when 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 there was this thing called style i grew up as a skater and i just dressing up was never my thing and i never even wore a tie but but it suddenly dawned on me there's such a thing as tie length and an appropriate length so i started studying it and pretty soon i'm like look at that joker his tie is way too short i can almost see his belly button right and that guy, his tie's like down to his knees. I mean, what is up with Mr. Long Tie, right? Here's the thing we, we, can, we can judge anyone for anything. And if we're honest, we do. We do it all the time. Like, like we are addicted to, to this thing. We, we are continually, we have, we have some paradigms in our mind that are very rigid and very structured. These us-them paradigms where, where we're the good guys and they're the bad guys, right? In our culture today, those are really predictable. They can be political parties and stuff like we're the good guys, they're the bad guys. Our political candidate's the good guy, their political candidate's the bad guy. Our, our political initiatives are the good ones and theirs are the bad ones. They, they can be um, social things, they can be dress, they can be um, what kind of music people listen to, they can be all the way down to which Mexican food joint you prefer in town. Right? I mean, we literally create us and them paradigms continually. And what's ironic about us and them paradigms, us and them paradigms is that the us are always the good guys. Very seldom are the them the good guys and, and we're not. We always have a way of of identifying ourselves with the good guys. Listen, this is one of the most deadly fruit that has come from our rebellion against God. And, and what's ironic about it is that we all do it, and because we all do it, I think we all forget that we're doing it, and, and we don't really pay attention to it. This is our need to feel superior to others, is one of the most powerful ways we undercut our own experience of grace. Like, I, I'm not even stating that strongly enough. There are some people that will be excluded from grace, because of their need to be superior to others. And there will be many, many more who are undercutting their experience of grace because of their need to feel superior to others, to judge. Listen, there there is no them. Biblically, there's only us, people in need of grace. And until we see that, we will not be able to grow in the love of God, nor will we be able to move out in the love of God and grow there in mission. All right, so let's take a look at our text and, and kind of unpack what's happening here. Uh, it's again, a very heavy text, this, this portion of the letter. Paul is showing us our great need for this great message, our, our great need for this great Savior. He, he's, he's showing us the bad news that makes the good news really, really good, okay? So we begin in in, uh, chapter 2, verse 1, therefore, you have no excuse, oh man. Um, The therefore, what is the therefore, therefore? I always keep telling you guys, make sure you ask, what's the therefore, therefore? It's really odd here because at the end of chapter 1, all of chapter 1 is about how they exchange the glory of God for the image of man. They suppress the truth. They are idolaters, Right Now, we talked as I taught through that, that Paul really means we, speaking about all humanity, but it's written in such a way that when you read it, by the time you get to the end of it, you're like, you're right, they, they're, they're bad. They deserve judgment. And then you get to this therefore, which the word therefore normally is a logical conclusion to an argument. A is true, B is true, therefore C is true, but where he's going now does not seem to be a logical outflow of where he's been. Like, we see a drastic change in direction. He no longer is talking about they. He's not talking about about their idolatry. He's not talking about their determination to to, um, act in ungodliness and unrighteousness, their desire to ungod God and, and, and defraud people created in the image of God, of their dignity, right? He suddenly shifts, therefore. Which is really interesting because what it tells me is that over the course of Paul's argument, the only reason he told us all this stuff in chapter one is to chapter two. This is what he's been waiting for. He knows his audience. His audience are, are um, Roman believers who are predominantly Greek speaking, Greek cultured Gentiles. Uh, people who, who would have thought of themselves um, as followers of God, been very moral and culturally would have seen themselves at the, stop, at the top of the honor-shame paradigm, right? Because um, whether they are Jewish believers, the Jews saw themselves as God's covenant people up here, uh, the us, and the Gentile world is the them. They're the ones down the line of shame. Um, they are the ones that are, that are uh, uh, not accepted by God, not God, God's covenant people. The Greek-speaking Romans would have saw themselves as, as the top of the honor paradigm, and all the barbarians, as the people down, right? They would have looked up north to the, the raiding Anglo-Saxon hordes, those crazy Celts, and, and been like, those barbarians are, are ruthless and, and, and godless, and, and they would have seen the barbarians, anybody who was non-Greek, as down the honor scale, right? And so he's, he's been setting us up by, by bringing us to this place where we're all like, you're right, they deserve judgment. Those idolaters, those people who exchange the glory of God for the, for the, for the image of man, those, those people who, who are trying to ungod god God, ungodliness, and trying to defraud people created in the image of God of the dignity of that creation, right? They're acting in unrighteousness or injustice. Those people deserve judgment. He says, therefore, you have no excuse, oh man. Another drastic change. Instead of talking about they, he suddenly starts addressing this person called O-Man. Um, and he starts using the much more direct pronoun you. Um, now, this is still an indirect confrontation. We talked about how in Eastern cultures, they don't like direct confrontations. They like to create space where people can save face, right? This is still an indirect confrontation. This is a, a stylistic device called a diatribe where he creates a fictitious opponent that he names O-Man. And then he confronts this fictitious opponent and then invites us to see ourselves in the argument, right? So, so when he leads out, therefore, you have no excuse, O oh man, we're left wondering, okay, am I the O man and why do I have no excuse? Why? Because every one of you who, have, uh, who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. You're without excuse. You're without excuse because you judge and then do the same exact thing. Um, have you ever uh, been been driving down the road and, um, uh, you, you know, you've got crazy guy coming up in the rearview mirror behind you? You know, it's going, going way too fast, swerving through traffic. Um, you know, just doing the all over, using all five lanes to get, you, you know what I'm talking about, right? What happens in your heart when you see that guy? coming up in your rearview mirror, and then racing by you, and he keeps darting, and, and off he goes, and, and then, you know, about five miles up, you see the, the lights on on the side of the road, and, uh, and you come up, and you realize it's him pulled over. How do you feel? Like, come on, how do you feel? Yeah, yeah. you're like, you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You yes, there is justice in the universe. Finally, crazy driver gets what he deserves, right? Yeah, you didn't even notice that that long before you got there, when you saw the lights on the side of the road, what happened to your speed? You slowed down. Right? Why? Because you were speeding. You were going along with the flow of traffic like everybody else. And when you saw the lights on the side of the road, instinctively, you're like, this is Sunday drive, Steve. This is how I drive all the time. I never exceed the speed limit because I'm Sunday drive Steve, right? And as you go by and you're rejoicing in the fact that they're being held accountable and getting a ticket, what truth are you suppressing about yourself? completely ignore the fact that you're a lawbreaker too. See, that's what Paul is saying, is when we judge others, we feel really superior to them. We look down on them and shame them and take joy in their demise. When we take joy in the fact that, that they're finally getting what they deserve, what we're willfully not paying attention to is that we deserve it too that we're guilty of the very same things that we condemn others for. When you judge them, you judge yourself. Therefore, you're without excuse. Because you judge them, you're admitting the judgment is right. Because you take joy in the fact that they're being held accountable, you are admitting that there is a moral law in the universe that you celebrate as good. Injustice should be held accountable. Lawbreakers should be held to the law. We're a country of law and order. People who take advantage of the system should be persecuted and prosecuted. And yet, if we were to look at ourselves honestly, we would recognize that every single one of us are not only lawbreakers. We are those who take advantage of the system every opportunity we can within certain bounds that we think are safe. You are without excuse. When you make yourself the judge, you call for your own condemnation. When you make yourself the judge, you're calling for your own condemnation, right? Paul moves very quickly into this argument as he moves forward in verses 2 and 3. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things, right? You already celebrated that. When you celebrated the guy pulled over on the side of the road, you're like, yes, the judgment of God rightly falls. Verse 3, do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Do you really think you're the exception? Do, do you think that, that, you know, God holds them accountable and that's a good and right thing, but you know me, <laughs> I deserve a mulligan because I'm, I'm not like them. I, I, I'm not, I don't do what they do. Yeah, I was speeding, but I wasn't swerving. Right? I, I, wasn't, I wasn't being like him. I was, I, was, I was being like all the rest of us safe people over here. I wasn't sinning like him i was sinning like all these other people and and we all think that sin is safe we all think that sin's okay and since we all think that sin's okay then surely god right you deserve not to right they they, we think that we don't deserve to be judged by the same measure why in verse four verse four or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and the forbearance of his patience Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Do you presume, do you feel entitled to the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Have you ever done that really bad thing? That you knew as soon as you did it, man, you were going to get struck by lightning. But you really wanted to do it, so you did it anyway. You know what I'm saying? Like that really bad thing that you're like, I'll never do that. And then you're like, all right, I'm going to do it and then you didn't get struck by lightning, right? God didn't show up in his Shekinah glory and unmake you. He he didn't send an emissary, an angelic being to come and beat you down. In fact, all you got was silence. Huh? Did you take The outpouring of the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience in that moment and and be like, I will treasure this, this outpouring of riches. I am so grateful for the kindness of God. My heart is now filled and overflowing with gratitude to the God who did not judge me. And did you then repent and never go and do it again? Because of the richness of God's kindness and patience. Is that that what you did? Or like me, did you think, huh, I guess it wasn't that bad after all. I guess God doesn't think it was all that bad, right? Maybe he didn't notice. Maybe he doesn't care. Did you use the kindness and patience and forbearance of God as an excuse to sin more? Nothing bad happened. I might as well do it again. It's like when you're speeding in a certain area, and when you're first doing it, you're like, I wonder if they ever monitor this area. And after a while, you're like, they never monitor this area. This is like the Autobahn. Right? I'm going! Right? We do it because instead of treasuring the riches of God's patience and forbearance and kindness, we instead feel entitled to it. Verse 5, what's the result? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. See, instead of receiving and storing up the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience and treasuring that for the treasure that it is, you feel entitled to it and therefore you presume upon it. And as a result, you end up storing a very different kind of treasure. A treasure of wrath. When God's righteousness will be revealed on the day of wrath and in righteous judgment that will be revealed. We've already talked about the wrath of God in chapter 1, verse 18. We saw that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And we talked about how what that means is, is we seek to ungod god We try to do life apart from God, separate from God, instead of being joyfully dependent on the God in whose image we were created we instead want to be like God. We want to compete with God. We want to be God. I want to live for my glory, not your glory. I, I want to provide for my own security. I don't want to be humbly and daily and moment by moment dependent on you to give me security. I, 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 want, I want to pursue my own pleasure on my own terms. I want, to, I want to define my own worth, right? We compete with God. We seek to un-God God, and as a result, we act in unrighteousness. We are unjust toward others that are created in the image of God instead of giving them the honor due to them because of the God who created them, we dishonor them. We feel content and even joyful robbing them of their dignity, defrauding them of of their, their fundamental right to be honored. And we feel completely content and justified in doing so because somehow we're superior to them, right? We've already seen that God is righteously angry our attempt to dethrone him and to rob the universe of the goodness of his presence and that that is in fact an expression of his love the opposite of wrath isn't love wrath is the result of love because god loves he is outraged when what he loves is defrauded and victimized and destroyed right the opposite of wrath is is moral indifference and our god is not morally indifferent to the pain and the suffering that we have unleashed in this created order. So we see that there is, in a sense, a wrath of God that is currently being revealed and, and, and in Romans 1 we saw that, that means God gives us over to the consequences of our choices in a limited sense. But there will come a point at which the wrath of God will not be a limited giving over. There will be a day of reckoning. What 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 Paul calls the, the the, the day of wrath, which is um, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And on that day, there will be no measure to the revelation of his judgment. And on that day, we will actually be held accountable. In our hypocrisy, when we judge others... But withhold judgment from ourselves. When we see ourselves as superior to others, when we think they're the ones worthy, we are only adding to the wrath we ourselves deserve. And I know people are going to object. They're going to be like, "Steve, come on, man, you can't level that whole thing out and just say all sins the same, right?" Yeah, I cheat on my taxes, but I didn't embezzle, you know, a billion dollars from a company, leaving hundreds of thousands of people completely destitute. I didn't do that right? Yeah, I, I posted an insulting meme against somebody that, that I didn't know, but, but I didn't slanderously attack them to their face and, and degrade them, and, and I, you know, I, yeah, I do these things, but surely there are gradations. Maybe, surely there are, some are worse than others, right? I speed, but I wasn't weaving through traffic endangering others, See, what's interesting about all of this is what hoops we jump through to try to defend ourselves from judgment. The complex systems of self-justification that we create that somehow make us right and still keep them wrong. The, The moral... And intellectual gymnastics that we have to go through so that at the end of the story, somehow we're still the good guy and they're still the bad guy, leaving us free to continue to judge others and excuse ourselves. Paul is driving home that God doesn't see the world through our self centered lenses. God does not approach reality through our distortion of it. Our pride causes us to see all things through this fisheye that distorts the reality of it. God judges according to reality. So in this next section, Paul um, changes gears again, which we can see because he, he shifts from you to they again, right? There's a subtle shift in verse 6 back to they, Um and he's actually going to use a rhetorical device called a chiastic structure. Uh, and the reason I bring this up is that I think it's important understanding these verses. In verses 6 through 11, what we see is a structure where Paul makes three assertions and then makes those same three assertions in reverse order. So it's like an A, B, C, C, B, A type structure. It, it is a device that we used in ancient literature, um, ancient Near Eastern, Eastern literature, to, to drive home a point. And the main point is, is going to be found either in the heart, at the very center of that, of that comparison, or on the outer edges. And in this case, it's found in the outer edges. Let me go ahead and put the verses up behind me so that you can see the structure I'm talking about and get a feel for what I'm, what I'm talking about. In verse 6, uh, Paul makes the point that God judges equitably, right? In verse 7, he makes the point that those who do good receive eternal life. In verse 8, he makes the point that those who do evil suffer wrath, right? That's the ABC argument. Now we're going to see that in reverse order, right? In, in verse 9, uh, he makes the point that tribulation and, uh, and suffering are for those who do evil. In verse 10, that, that glory and honor um, are for those who, who do good. And then finally, again, in verse 11, that God judges impartially. Why? Why does Paul put this here? And and, and, and honestly, these are some really difficult verses Theologically, um, as, as we'll see as we kind of dig into this. Well, it's because Paul's setting up what I think is a very, very simple view of reality compared to our complex view, right? Our sophisticated, self justifying view where, where we want to somehow make it out that we're here and they are there. That, that we're good, they're bad, we're right, they're wrong. Um, we're going to be justified. They're going to be judged, right? Paul's like, let me give you a very, very simple view of reality, right? The main point is this, God judges without partiality, right? Take a look at uh, verse 6. He will render to each one according to his works and then verse 11, for God shows no partiality. He's simply asserting a truth that we see throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, that there will be a time where every human being will stand before God and have to give an account for every action, every word, and every motivation. Like, that's biblical. That will happen. You were created in the image of God, and that comes with obligations. God didn't just create you out of randomness with no purpose. There is a purpose, and you're held accountable to that purpose. You were created to image God. In other words, to reflect his character, to operate under his glory, to, to relate to others according to honor, to, to carry out the creation mandate of protecting what God has given us and expanding it and growing it for the flourishing of life. You are accountable. You've been given your your not only your soul, but all of your gifts for a specific purpose. And Paul makes a very simple observation: you'll be held accountable. God will judge. And his judgment will be without partiality. For the Jews, what that meant was it doesn't matter if you're God's covenant people or not. If, if God gave you the Old Testament, if God gave you the covenants, it doesn't, you will be judged by the same manner. To the Greeks, it meant it doesn't matter if you are the pinnacle of human society, that, that you are the wisest humans on the face of the earth, that you are the bringers of order to a disordered world. It doesn't matter. You will be judged by the same standard As everyone else what is that standard take a look at the next verse verse 8 but for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey oh excuse me verse 7 to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality he'll give eternal life right that's reflected in verse 9 or excuse me verse 10 but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good so there's a possible good outcome to this judgment right? People who um, by patience and well-doing seek for glory, honor, and immortality, he'll give eternal life, right? That, that is a possible outcome. God will judge everybody according to their works, and if their works justify them, they will be justified. So let's pay close attention to what Paul is saying here to find out if this fits us, right? What he says is, is first of all, they are patient in this endeavor, Those who patiently seek, in other words, never tiring, never exhausting, never resting, never giving up, never failing in what? Their pursuit of glory, honor, and immortality. In other words, they are absolutely passionate about keeping the glory centered on God and not robbing God of an ounce of His glory. They live to the splendor of His character and the honor of His reign. They carry out their vice regency, their authority, to the glory of the true king at all times. They they are patient, never tiring, never exhausting, never resting, never giving up, never failing pursuit of honor. In other words, they are continually recognizing the imago Dei, the image of God, and everybody around them. People with whom they agree or disagree. They don't despise anyone. They don't degrade anyone. They don't use their language to dehumanize anyone because they recognize that every single person around them is created in the very image of God, and to honor God requires them to honor the people created in His image. They don't rob anyone of their glory. And they patiently, never tiring, never exhausting, never resting, never giving up, never failing, pursue immortality. In other words, they are continually seeking to find the fullness of life in the presence of God who gives that fullness. They're looking to find the fullness of life in the presence of life himself. They don't look to things God created to do for them what only God can do. They don't look to things that, that, that God made asking them to be for them what only God can be. They don't look to their jobs. They don't look to their success. They don't look to, to their fame or their recognition or their physical beauty or, or their acceptance from people to do for them what only God can do. No, they, they, are, they are absolutely patient and never failing in their pursuit of immortality. This person will be justified in the judgment. This person will be given eternal life. Is this you? Because it's not me. I mean, it's not even close. Right? I mean, I, I can't even tell you how far I fall. So I only know one person who fits this description, and his name is Jesus, and I'm not him. Right? This is Jesus. When you read through the Gospels, his every intention, his every word, his every action glorified God and honored man. And he never looked to anything that wasn't God to be God for him, to do for him what only God could be. He found his identity rooted in his creator. Now, I find myself in the next comparison, which would be um, verses 7 and 8. Take a look at verse 7 or 8. But for those who are self-seeking, and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. That's repeated in verse 9, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, right? Same idea repeated twice. But for those who are self-seeking, their root motivation, instead of a continual patient pursuit of glory, honor, and immortality, their root motivation is self-seeking. The word that's used here is found only once in ancient literature. It was used more, but we only found it once. and and Aristotle used it, and he used it to describe politicians who sought office for personal gain instead of public good. Their motivation was to get public office for personal gain instead of public good. Self-seeking, selfishness. What he's saying is, is the root motivation is personal gain. moment of, of honesty, how much of you, how much of what you do is motivated by selfishness? How much of what you do is motivated by you wanting to increase your security? You wanting to increase your worth. You wanting to increase your fame. You're wanting to increase your beauty. I'd propose to you, at least when I look deep into my motivations, even my best works are motivated by selfish desires, on some level. Everything I do is connected somehow to me wanting to, to avoid discomfort, or to increase my pleasure, or to increase my fame, which makes me feel significant worthwhile. or or wanting to be loved because it's when people love me that I actually feel like I'm worth being loved, right? It's all about me. There's a black hole of need within me. And no matter how much I feed it, it doesn't go away. Because like a black hole, the the gravitational pull and pressure is so great that no matter what I feed it, it just crushes it in there and it can't fill it. And so I'm continually driven, right? Those verses describe me, right? By by self-seeking, who are self-seeking. Therefore, they don't obey the truth. In other words, they don't act in accordance with what is real. The reality as God sees it, we have to create really, really creative paradigms that help us distort reality to justify ourselves and condemn others, to make ourselves feel like we're worthwhile while others aren't, that that allow us to compare ourselves favorably to others, that ends up with us thinking somehow, I really am more glorious, I really am more powerful, I really am more secure, I really am more important what drives me is my desperate need for the presence of God apart from the God who can meet those deep needs. I need God to tell me I'm loved, but I don't turn to God. I turn to people. I turn to fame. I need God to tell me I'm secure because if God tells me I'm secure, it doesn't matter what's in my bank account, but I don't go there. I go to my 401k. I go to my, how how secure are the locks on my doors? I go to how big is my fence, right? I I don't turn to God. I turn to things. And in the end, the reason I'm turning to those things is because I am driven by my need to take care of me. And if I'm honest, even sometimes the love that I give to others is even that's about me. I love you because I need you to love me. I sacrifice for you because I need you to value me. I make myself big in your eyes because I feel bigger when I see myself in your eyes. How deep does that hole go? All the way down. All the way down. See, Paul is creating a really, really simple structure that is meant to contrast with our super complex way of trying to cloud the picture. He's like, you want to create these layers and layers and layers of self-justification, of of this is why I'm better and this is why this isn't as bad and this is why, Let let me just give you a very, very simple picture of reality. God judges impartially and there's only one standard by which he judges. You are either patiently never-failingly, never-endingly pursuing the reason for which you were created, or you are patiently, never-endingly, never-failingly trying to pervert it for personal gain. You're either trying to make God the center of the universe or you're trying to make you. That's about as simple as it gets. Then the question is, is, which camp do you fall in now? Where do you fall on that honor and shame paradigm, right? If honor is up here, now that's where Jesus is. The shame's down here, and by the way, that's all of us. Where's the us them? Where, Where are the grounds for feeling superior to anybody? Where do we get off thinking that somehow we're better because they're worse? That we should take joy in the judgment, the suffering condemnation of anyone even if they deserve what they get because in telling them you deserve what you get we're simply declaring we also deserve what you got yes them paradigms are absolute addiction to our need to create circles of acceptance and rejection to draw a circle and say everybody who's in this circle with me is better than everybody who's outside because you're either with me or the us or you're with them that impulse while it is absolutely ubiquitous it is everywhere we all do it followers of Christ you need to understand that that impulse is the enemy of your experience of grace as soon as you put yourself on that shame honor that honor shame paradigm where you feel better than others where you feel justified in judging them where you feel a need to see others get what they deserve as soon as you go there you're quietly saying i'm entitled to grace you presume on the kindness and the patience and the forbearance of god which then cuts off your experience of grace because God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. Every single time we get on social media and we are tempted to pile on condemning somebody that we all don't like or an idea that we all don't support, or a politician that we all feel great despising. You're dishonoring God, and you're working against the best interests of your own soul. Every time you sit around the coffee shop, and the conversation inevitably turns to a form of gossip in which everybody is talking about that person who is the flavor of the day the flavor we don't want to taste, the the person we all like to talk bad about. That's not just distracting noise. That's not just harmless conversation. That is the very enemy of your soul. I can't, like this is one of the things I think I've realized over the last decade of my Christian life. I simply cannot be overflowing in the gratitude of grace while I am despising People who need grace. I cannot be growing in grace if I'm not moving out in grace. And I can't move out in grace if I'm building the walls of pride in my heart. When we rejoice in the demise, of the failure, of the dishonor of others, we are actually not only affirming that they're worth judgment, we are building up judgment for ourselves. When we call out their faults, we condemn ourselves. So let me just give you some quick ideas, some, 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 some applications that I think we can do with this. What do, we, what do we do with this, right? Because this is the part of the letter, uh, not a lot of practical application here. <laughs> this is Paul still kind of explaining our great need for a great Savior. This is Paul talking to his Roman readers and saying, here's the gut punch um, of reality so that you will turn to the hug of your Savior instead of pridefully thinking you don't need him. And Here's the bad news that makes the good news really, really good. This is us, right? And when we're tempted to suppress the truth, to think they really are worthy of judgment, to think that it really is okay to despise them, it really is okay to attack them, it really is okay to celebrate their demise and their their indignity, grace calls us to recognize that those are all pride-induced hallucinations and that when we do, life out of those places we cut off the power of grace from our experiences so let me just give you a few quick takeaways first of all we need to become quick and good at repenting of our need to judge others and by judge here i don't mean make distinctions different people have different opinions and not all those opinions are good ones (laughs) right there's a reason that that we have public debate there's a reason because a lot of times people do come to the table with really really strong opposing opinions and the reality is, if we're honest, most of the time, there's a lot that's right and a lot that's wrong in both sides. We actually grow from healthy dialogue. We actually grow from differing opinions coming around the table and actually kind of hammering it out, right? I'm not talking about just being vanilla nice, right? Like, like I'll just wanna, I won't judge anybody. I'll be nice. I won't have any strong opinions. I won't think anything. I'll just become a vacuum of nothingness, right? No, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about your need to feel superior to those that you disagree with. I'm talking about your need to not only disagree with them, but to dehumanize them. I'm talking about your need to to not only disagree with them, but to mock them. Your need to not just have a varying opinion from them, but a need to demonstrate why yours is so much better and theirs is so much worse. Humility. Humility. Y'all, we need to go to war with the impulse of our hearts that make us feel superior to others. That impulse that drives us to cast shade, to disrespect, to to quietly feel better and more more put together and more, you know, just superior. Every single time. Here's the thing. If you start paying attention to this impulse in your heart, you're going to run into it a thousand times a day because we are addicted to this. This is one of the first and nastiest fruits of our rebellion against God. It shapes the way we encounter the world because we've become so good at suppressing the truth and seeing the world instead through the distortions of our pride. We have to learn how to recognize those distortions and to call them out for what they are and to repent of them, which means we need to get really, really good at repentance. We need to be really, really careful watching our hearts, right? There are are bad ideas out there. And there are some really bad people out there. But that does not give me the right to not recognize the Imago Dei in any of them, the image of God. It doesn't give me the right to think that somehow I am more worthy of God's blessing than they are because when it comes down to it, there's only us. People deeply in need of grace. That's it. We need to repent of our need to judge others. Recognize that when we judge others, we're not just part of the problem. We're the embodiment of the problem. That's the embodiment of the problem. What's what is the root problem in America? It's not that people have different opinions or different ideas or different conflicting views of how the economy should run. Or th- those aren't the problems. The root problem is somehow we think we're going to fix those problems by dehumanizing the people we disagree with and trying to ungod god and actually exercise the authority of God in judgment over them. Secondly, we need to dismantle the us-them paradigms that flow from that. So what us-them paradigms do you have? They're all different. We all have them, but they're all different. Where where do you see yourself higher on the honor scale and other people lower? Where are you very, very quick to feel entitled? Entitled to honor? Entitled to praise? Entitled to, to, to being treated well? Where do you feel entitled in ways that other people you think shouldn't be? That right there is an indicator of an us-them paradigm. Where do you you feel really, really competitive? Like you're constantly feeling the need to compare yourself to someone else in this area. To constantly find out where you are. Do I measure up? Am I ranking? Am I I above them or below them? And Oh my goodness, thank God there's enough people below me, right? That's an us-them paradigm. We need to get better at identifying Those structures that we create that help us create false sense of value. Because they're delusions, all of them, every single one of them are delusions, self-created delusions of pride. We need to identify them and we need to dismantle them, recognizing that um, there is, again, only one group. Those who are exposed by God and deeply in need of grace. And one final thing that I think helps us through this, because here's a progression that I think is important. Often we go from despising others to despising ourselves. And some of you are in real danger of doing this, of recognizing, man, I, I used to despise a lot of other people, and now, and now you turn that despising inward, and you see every flaw, and you see every mistake, and, and you just fry yourself under the magnifying glens of, uh, of self-condemnation. The whole point of this is not to fill your vision with other people's brokenness to make you feel superior or your brokenness to make you feel full of shame. The whole point of this is to reveal the bad news so that you come to be undone by how good the good news is. You need to fill your vision with Jesus. The one who loved you enough to die under the weight of your condemnation, the one who was your substitute in judgment, the one who went to the heart of that paradigm and, and, and drank that cup of wrath to its dregs all the way down so that there was none left for you, so that, so that you could once again be who God created you to be, to be forgiven, redeemed, and restored. Fill your vision with Him, not with yourself. Fill your vision with Him, not with the people you despise. Fill your vision with Him, not with your political agendas. Fill your vision with Him, not with, not with the solutions that you think you have for the world. Fill your vision with Him. And filling your vision with Him and allowing your heart to be fed by His love And allowing your security to be strengthened by his love. And allowing your need to be important to be fed by his love. And and, and your need for deep rest to be fed by, by the outpouring of his love. Coming to the table of grace and feasting on grace with the God who loves you. You will be freed from your need to despise others. Because you will be freed from your need to continually compare yourself for your worth and you'll be freed from your need to despise yourself because you'll be so filled with the vision of the Savior who loves you that you'll be like, yeah, I'm in deep need, but look how great my Savior is. Yes, I'm a mess. But I've got nothing to prove and no one to impress because look who loves me. Focus on your common need and God's provision for that need in Jesus, and that'll free you from your obsessive need to focus on your personal enemies, to judge, to condemn, whether it's them or you or anyone else. All right, we're gonna wrap it up there for this morning. Um, We'll dig into the rest of this chapter next week as Paul um, makes the applications a little bit more direct and a little less general. That'll be fun. Um, this morning, we have the baptismal set up. I want to let you guys know we have a baptism set up after service, so I'm going to encourage you to stay after service to help us celebrate uh, our baptism. And I also want to invite you, every time we set it up, I just feel the need to put the invitation out there. If you've believed in Jesus and you have not yet uh, been dunked <laughs> in obedience to Him, we want to give you that opportunity this morning. Right? What we see is a clear pattern in the New Testament where people believe in Jesus and then they have a public declaration of that faith. Where they are baptized to celebrate um, their faith in Jesus, right? Baptism is a powerful symbol of a powerful reality. It is just a symbol, but that doesn't make it any less powerful. So when you get baptized, right, you get taken under the water, which is symbolic of your being united with Christ in death. He died on the cross for you. You believed in him. That means you've died with Christ and you've been raised with Christ to new life. In his resurrection, you're no longer who you were right? You're no longer that person who's under wrath. You are now adopted into the family of God, a son, a daughter of the living God. You are now covered in the rightness of Christ. And you are invited to a glorious future in His kingdom, not because you've earned it, but because He's earned it for you, right? That's what baptism symbolizes, this wonderful passage from death to life, this transformation, this gift that we've received by faith. So if you've received that gift, if you've believed in Jesus, even if it was just this morning, but you haven't yet been dunked. You haven't yet obeyed Jesus by being baptized. We want to give you the opportunity to take that step of obedience this morning, and I mean like literally this morning. You came here dry. You go home wet. Okay. Um, now don't worry. We thought about it ahead of time. We have clothes for you, right? We have we have a change of clothes, even even the private stuff, right? And and um, and so you know we're not gonna we're not gonna make it so that you're actually leaving sopping wet. But um, we do want to make it available to you. This is an opportunity for you to obey Jesus through baptism. So if you want to be baptized, if you've believed in Christ and haven't been baptized, but would like to take that step of obedience this morning, feel like the Spirit's prompting you to do it, don't ignore that. Go to Connection Point out in the lobby and let them know, and they'll have a conversation with you. you will actually talk to one of our elders, and that elder will help you discern if now's the right time, if this is the right step um, for your faith, and, and, and if maybe it'd be better scheduled sometime else, or more conversations, or whatever. But we just, we open up that conversation with you and help you make that decision. Um, But we do encourage you to go to Connection Point quickly uh, because we're going to be doing the baptism pretty much immediately after service, and we'd like to know if you're going to be joining us for that, okay? All right. Let me pray for us. We're going to a time of reflection. We'll share communion in a moment. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you. I you um, I thank you that you are brutally honest, but even your brutal honesty is an expression of love. You tell us what we need to hear. You show us what we need to see that we'll be set free from the lies that enslave us. We'll we'll be freed from the prideful delusions and distortions of reality that that make us think that that somehow you're not real or or that somehow we're okay or that somehow in our pride we really can become God. I thank you that you invite us back to humility. You invite us back to, to being just creatures that we can rest from our attempt to be you. We can rest from our attempt to control everything and know everything and achieve everything. And instead, we we can recognize that our deepest needs are met in you and that we're invited back near because you paid the price of love. Jesus was my substitute, took my place, died my death so I could be invited into his life. I just thank you for that. I pray for my friends that you would undo our pride, that you would awaken within us an overwhelming gratitude in response to this grace, that we would not presume on your kindness, that we would not feel entitled to your blessing, but instead would moment by moment just be shocked and and once again have our awe renewed that our creator God would love us this much, that he would pay such a price to redeem us and restore us. And if there are any this morning that are far from you that need to hear this message and be invited near, Spirit, will you make this invitation clear to their hearts that they might this morning experience genuine saving faith to believe in Jesus, that they also might be covered in Christ. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.